your attention, please. Okay. This has like a Chet feel to it. You know that song like Roll Over DJ? Uh-huh. I got the rock star parking everybody wants out on the street for okay. the feet okay. from the bus stop. Cause every day and every day. This is Benj Heard, spelled B E N J Heard. Yeah, he has kind of that that rockabilly vibe. Again, that artist Jet comes to mind in that song, Roll Over DJ. Hey, roll over DJ, you're spinning away all my time. And now if you look at Ben J. Hurd's website, that's what it is. It's Ben J. Hurd. The middle name is Ben J. I'm thinking it's Ben J. Ben J. Hurd, his website, his about section Bree's just very open and honest, which is kind of indicative of his music here. It's just very much in your face. Anyhow, that's a good new artist. I found him on Spotify, 21,000 followers. I will definitely be tuning into him for the rest of this week. Anyhow, business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. And I want to welcome all of you new business class listeners to the show. Thanks for tuning in. You're in for a great treat. I will be exploring all things automotive and how automotive is a microcosm to the world as we know it today, from a social lens, from an economic lens, from a political lens. All of that's happening on Wisco Weekly. Coming up on the show next week, I will be doing a recap and analysis of the National Automobile Dealers Association convention happening right now, going on virtually. And I must say, the jury. And my head says that it's been a favorable experience so far. The production is top-notch. The, the way that these virtual conferences have evolved to not simply be just a Zoom or a Skype or a Microsoft Teams group chat, it's now turning into more of a production, and that's evident through what NADA has done. So uh, the production quality is great. The content, it's good. Again, I think uh, we'll get more into that next week as I have on a special guest, uh, Randy Kobot from V Auto and Cox Automotive. So he will be on the show as well as maybe a couple other special guests. One of my favorite things that was going on today was an interview with Rhett Rickert, the dealer principal and NADA current president. Rhett Rickert interviewing Bob Woodward, the famous or perhaps infamous journalist of our times. He's, he's been a journalist for 50 years. So that was a great about 20 minute interview. I'll play some highlights of that next week and we'll shed some more analysis on what's happening just in the tier three space. And again, how that's a microcosm for the world. Now let's get to today's episode. I don't know where to start with today's episode. The journey to find this guest started with a previous recording with another guest, Randall O'Toole, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And he informed me that there is a company out in Texas that provides loans to disadvantaged, poor credit individuals to help them get back on their feet. 
And so I had to seek out this company, and lo and behold, I find a wonderful entrepreneur who has taken, as I described in the episode, the path less traveled. She definitely has some courage in the manner in which she is trying to fund the sustainability and the long-term operation of her business. And it's not just a matter of courage, as I find out later that she also was trained in this aspect. So it's kind of a great episode to hear some insights on different ways that you can go about either setting up your next entrepreneurial endeavor or if you have a if you if you feel like you've hit a plateau in your business perhaps this will spark some ideas on how you can grow to the next level and really gain this again long-term sustainability to your business that's coming up right now so let's get into the show you are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vítejte, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the show. And my, oh my, have we kicked off 2021 pretty damn good so far. And I have to tell you, if you listen to the last episode, we're going to continue to focus this year on making the investment and specifically encouraging all of you to this year, make the investment, whatever that is, make the investment in time, make the investment in money, make the investment in yourself, make the investment in your family, whatever it is, make the investment. And that could be dissected in a lot of different ways, but that's what I'm here for. This is what I'm here to do. This is why I'm bringing all these guests to you to make the investment. So having said that, on today's show, my, do I have a great guest for you, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Here's why I'm a fan of today's guest. At the moment, she has a current initiative to raise capital for her existing operation. The current initiative is called the Sustainability Bond Issuance Framework, or simply the framework, and it will serve to greenify her company dubbed On The Road Company and all of its subsidiaries and advance the socioeconomic status to all those who are able to be part of it in some shape or form. The slide deck I read and I geeked out on was quite impressive, especially in the areas of accountability and transparency. And I believe that is truly just an extension of the founder and CEO. This founder CEO has been building brick by brick on the road company since 2011 by expanding new services, expanding new locations, raising new capital, and just grinding her way to where they currently stand managing millions of dollars in assets and helping working Americans move up the social mobility chain and obtain greater levels of personal prosperity. Here to share more about her journey of building a socially and fiscally responsible company, men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, the University of Texas Longhorn, the Southern Methodist University Mustang, the entrepreneur, Mrs. Michelle Corson. Hello, Michelle. Hi. That's a great introduction. Thank you for well, that. It's nice to be here with you. 
Well, like I said, I kind of went down a rabbit hole researching yourself and your companies. And so there's many things that I think not only, you know, this is kind of one of those episodes that I want to do really for the listeners, because I'm kind of somewhat familiar with what I think, how you've been able to start and sustain your company. And I do believe that it is, it's, you've taken the path less traveled in the way you've done it. And I, I could be wrong about that, but we'll, we'll get to know more about that from you yourself. Uh, before we begin, though, Michelle, uh, how what's the best way that people can follow you, um, get in touch with you? Yeah, really. Follow you. Yeah. Uh, so we have a fantastic uh, email distribution that we do for people that are uh, signed up for that. But we also have uh, On the Road Lending is on uh, Twitter um, and Facebook. We have our um, Instagram channel as well. And they can find us all there. Um, happy to make our social media handles available. Certainly. And I will, um, all uh, business class, I will make sure I put some of those links, of course, on the episode page. So, Michelle, On the Road Companies is the parent company to what it seems to be three particular main companies, sub-companies, operations. So there's On the Road Lending, there's On the Road Garage, and there's On the Road Motors. Do I have that correct? You do. Um, we also have a few other entities as well. Uh, on the Road Sustainability Funds is another one that we have. Um, Champion Impact Capital is another one as well. Um, so we've got, uh, I think all total now, we've got about eight companies. Okay. So I, one of the things, maybe let's, let's actually start here because this is kind of an interesting dilemma that I find that a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of faced with initially. And that is, do they kind of have just one parent company or do they have some of the different subsidiaries? How did you end up deciding that you wanted to have one parent and then have different subsidiaries versus, you know, kind of just one whole parent or or just a variety of, you know, itself companies? Yeah. So actually all of the entities that we have are actually not subsidiaries. There are a couple of them that have their own subsidiary entities, but they are actually all standalone businesses. We refer to them collectively as on the road companies. Um, we are exploring the possibility of creating a parent entity that would be over all of them. Um, it would certainly make our CFO's life a lot easier if right. we didn't have <laughs> tons and tons of all different entities. Um, it's a more complicated approach. But in the beginning, we really were not sure whether, to be honest, we were going to be able to raise money to do what we wanted to do because it was something that didn't exist in the marketplace. And it was something that wasn't very well understood uh, by investors. And so we set up the way that we did to try to maximize our ability to bring in money. So some foundations want to support a nonprofit. And so we have a nonprofit entity. We have others that are interested in investing um, in a for-profit entity. And so our loan funds are a for-profit. Um, so we have a mix and it's really just basically trying to make sure that uh, we can grow and um, and thrive by offering different things for different people who have a different investment thesis. How did you, did you start with the nonprofit first or did you start with the for-profit first then? 
uh, they actually came online about simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were really intentional about trying to set it up that way. And uh, so our, our nonprofit entity was actually formed, incorporated about six months before the loan fund. Um, but they were pretty close to coming online the same time. Uh, so why don't let's give uh, uh, my business class listeners here kind of just a quick overview of on the road companies. Could you maybe just describe what you guys do and the services you provide? Yeah, absolutely. Our mission is really about trying to build prosperity, as you mentioned, for America's working families. And we're doing that by trying to bring down costs of transportation across the value chain every piece of that. So we have a a dealership that can purchase vehicles off lease at auction. Uh, We have a um, finance company that will make loans on affordable cars for working families. Um, We have a nonprofit entity that helps people to learn about and decide what the best vehicle is for them and, um, and their needs. We also have a collision repair business where we're uh, repairing cars, but also training people on um, how to deal with and um, calibrate advanced driver assistance systems and working on technologies of the future for for cars. Uh, phenomenal. And, you know, business class listeners, I first came across Michelle after doing the recording with uh, Rando O'Toole, where he informed me that there was a company out in Dallas, Texas, that is providing, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, working families, uh, as Michelle alluded, uh, to helping them get into cars. And I, and one of the things, Michelle, that I think is pretty impressive about the operation and kind of the the stand that you have taken is this idea that regardless of your credit, which Oftentimes we're, we're referring to, you know, bad credit. You will simply offer these, um, these buyers a flat interest rate. I think that was extremely bold and impressive. Thank you for that. That's so nice. Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the typical model that lenders follow is to evaluate risk by making instantaneous decisions. They pull up a credit score and it's whatever it is, and that determines what rate uh, you're going to pay on a loan because it's all driven by are you likely to repay the loan or not based on prior events and prior actions. So their business model is built around an assumption and an expectation that people are going to fail. And they price their loans accordingly to build in that default risk, that loan loss reserve. We take the exact opposite point of view and say, what if we think that people are going to succeed instead of thinking that they're going to fail and we price everybody the same and we don't have to have this massive loan loss reserve because we know that they're going to succeed and we give them the tools to succeed. And the outcomes are astonishing. In the subprime lender world, about a third of their customers do default on their loans. In our world, about 3% default on their loans. So you know, it's a 10 to 1 difference in, in outcomes for people. 
do you know how uh, what is the estimated or average length of time that your your customers end up keeping their loan until whatever they trade in for something else or they just pay it off completely? Yeah, our um, our typical loan is a five year loan. Uh, some people pay it off early. We've we've had that happen. We actually had one um, little little girl from China that um, was fleeing domestic violence, and she was so thrifty. She paid off her car loan in six months. It was astonishing. Michelle, here, here's a little secret you may not know about. That's the Asian way of doing things. Oh, okay. Well, very good. <laughs> well, I mean, she was amazing. Um, truly, really remarkable. And we made her a second loan, um, which we don't do that often. Um, we actually have kind of a weird business model that we really hope that our our customers will use us as a bridge between the subprime and the prime world and move on and go get a really good loan that they can qualify for, which is a a wonderful thing to see because their credit has been built. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, I was getting into a discussion with uh, a prior guest, Jonathan Smoke, was just kind of the worries that I have as everyone that's involved in the automotive industry, how we are continuing to inflate our our bubble essentially and one of the things that's doing that is not only the the money supply that's coming in but the extension of the term of auto loans and it's great that you have kept it at five years but you know now the average is going around 70 months which is getting to closer to six years and again if we're especially if we're talking about used cars if we're talking about cars that are let's say $20,000 to go for a 6-year loan and the even 7-year note that's that's kind of burying us a little bit in in the automotive space where we were we're kind of overextending ourselves. Oh, Obviously yeah. you don't have that concern over there which is great. Yeah, I mean it's it, you're absolutely right in uh, our competitors if you will or the at what we say here in Texas the tote the note lot. Um, the buy here, what? pay, we call it the tote the note lot. Tote the note, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> the buy here, pay here, we finance, no credit, no problem, um, guys. And, you know, what What it's all focused on is um, what's your monthly payment? And I can, they go in there and they say, I can afford $300 a month. What can I get? And it's, well, you can have this, you know, 10-year-old Mercedes over here that's been repoed four times and wrecked a bunch, but, you know, we'll extend the term and get you to the payment that you need. And it's terrible for people. They lose their down payment. They lose the car because it breaks down. And if they're a low-income consumer, they don't usually have the ability to pay, make the payments while they're trying to save to fix a car that's not running. And of course, the car gets repossessed, which further damages their credit and potentially costs them a job and other things. So let's talk about how you've been able to raise and sustain uh, your operation through fundraising. Uh, I think, again, that is a very unique and very bold model, if, if, if I'm going to understand all of this correctly. And so maybe let's start hyper-focused in on your latest initiative, the sustainability bond issuance framework, and then maybe we can kind of scale back out and then rewind back in history to see how everything has kind of come together to this point, okay? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been interested in uh, sustainability bonds for a long time. I first heard about uh, Toyota Financial Services using a green bond 
to provide capital, raise capital in the bond market for making car loans. And it was exactly what we were trying to do. So this has been something that I've really wanted to do for a really long time. We are uh, going to market in April um, it for a potentially $100 million sustainability bond that will be used for expansion of our garage, primarily uh, buying other facilities, retrofitting them for environmental benefit. Um, so using LED lights instead of fluorescent lights and a water-based paint booth instead of a solvent-based paint booth. And things like that that we've done that are helping to reduce our environmental impact. And it's also funding expansion of our apprenticeship program where um, we are training vulnerable people, um, people perhaps who have lost their job in the pandemic or others that may have harder time finding a job like a disabled person or a veteran or a formerly incarcerated uh, person and trying to give them an opportunity to learn all different phases of collision repair um, it's a great field, and our country has really had a lot of disinvestment in trades in the last 40 years. We've had this notion that everybody needs to go to college to get ahead, and for many people they do, but that's not for everyone. And there are phenomenally good paying jobs in this industry, which has had an aging out because we haven't invested in a future pipeline of workers and so as people are getting older and wanting to step away from this business, there's a huge pent up demand for trained, skilled technicians, and they can make $150,000 a year without a four-year degree. Yeah, I uh, the the mechanic is one that is, there's a bit of a conundrum with, with the mechanic uh, career where you we are facing a shortage of, of labor in that area. There is there aren't a lot of motivated individuals wanting to get their hands dirty. However, I think as we start to you know digitize and add more technology into this automotive ecosystem, hopefully that will introduce more you know of the younger workforce that does want to get their hands dirty that they they do want to work on cars and not feel like it's just a blue collar job. I think, you know, I've had a chance to tour around some different college campuses and talk to college students that were involved in the FSAE, the Formula of Society of Automotive Engineers. And there's only been a handful of, let's say, you know, women in there and even the guys that are in there. You know, a lot of them are very much wanting to get their hands dirty. Um, however, th I think there's also this stigma that they you know, maybe taking away from their parents or the older generation where it's like, well, I don't know if I want to become a mechanic. And it's like, well, look, you're with autonomous vehicles, with electric vehicles, this is all stuff that you're actually doing now and that you're all testing right now. So it, it's a very valid career for, for specifically these college students. But again, anyone that wants to get involved in the automotive space that has a knack for technology and, and loves that stuff. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dennis. The, um, Cars today are much more um, technological than mechanical. They're really rolling computers, and the typical car has got more lines of code on it than a 747 does. They're very sophisticated, and with all of the advanced driver assistance systems that are intended to keep people out of collisions, 
they have to be calibrated anytime, you know, you even just a little fender bender. And if they're not, then they can actually cause accidents. And so that field, which is called mechatronics, is engineering, as you referred to. It's computer science, um, it's electrical, and it's mechanical. And so there's, um, there's great opportunities to work on all of that kind of thing that are less about turning a wrench and more about, you know, sitting at a keyboard. So you introduced a new term right there. Mechanic. What is it? Mechatronics. Mechatronics. Yeah. It's a new field. Um, it's actually something that's been around for a while, but they just never had a term for it. And now they do. Mechatronics. So now you know. <laughs> I, I love that. It's, it's like, uh, I don't know. I, my, the first thought when I, when you said that was, I was thinking like, I don't know. I was thinking house music, like, <laughs> You know, it, this mechatronic is going to be like a, a some sort of a sub genre of house music. <laughs> yeah, anyhow, that sounds great. <laughs> anyhow, so 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 you're currently in the process to raise one hundred million dollars through a sustainability bond, yes. which that was one of the things that really piqued my interest in your operation, because, you know, I've had the chance Michelle, to uh, attend a, a lot of different conferences, I'm sure as you have. And one of the conferences specifically that I, that I attended was called Women in Automotive. Have you heard this? I have heard of it. Um, yes. And, but I haven't been to one. Well, so I'm eager to hear what you had to say about it. Well, I, I think it's one of those things that like, you know, I, I as I've attended the, that conference and learned more about uh, the, the folks involved and what they're trying to do. There is definitely, you know, a, a lot of driven individuals naturally. There's a lot of change makers that are there, a lot of thought leaders that are there. But I will say, to your credit, and knowing the path that it takes to raise money through the bond market, you're definitely the only person that I know as a woman in automotive, a female in automotive that has gone down this path. And it's, again, it's, it's shockingly impressive. Not that, you know, you're a, a woman doing this or anything, but you put this all together and are, are doing it. I mean, again, I, I think personally it's phenomenal. I'm, I'm a fan. I seriously, I'm a fan. I, I understand how tough it is to raise money through the bond market. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so let's, let's rewind then when you got started, did you also go through the same type of bond market raising funds? I did not. Um, and I was trying to raise not a significant amount of money. Uh, originally wanted to raise about $5 million for our loan fund. And uh, I went, because I come from a finance background, that's the world that I knew. I went to people that I knew and talked to them about it. And um, just to see if there was any interest in the response that I got was we were just neither fish nor fowl. People understood subprime auto finance. Uh, many of them had experiences with it, not all of them positive. Um, and people understood the idea of nonprofit, of giving cars away. But we were trying to create something in the middle. Um, impact investing is, is the space that we're in. And it was still very new in the beginning when we were getting started. And it was very hard to get uh, people to invest. It took much longer than I thought it was going to. I was probably fairly naive about the whole thing. I just thought it made so much sense and everyone would get it. 
Um, people also did not understand transportation as an issue. If you live in a 2% world where you have good credit and you know you can get a car easily, you don't necessarily understand what it's like for a lower income single mom with three kids and you know poor credit trying to go get a decent vehicle um, or trying to make mass transit work, which brings me back to Randall O'Toole. I want to come back to that in a minute. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, we don't understand that, um, you know, and so it was very hard to get people to, to grasp what we were talking about and the issue we were dealing with. And what, so what was the impetus that finally you were able, able to get over the hump and get the initial investment? Like what, was it just a, you know, a hard sell? Was there, did you change up the message? How did you end up, you know, making your, your first uh, investment opportunity happen? You know, honestly, um, the honest truth is that Toyota helped us um, when they were moving their headquarters from California to Texas in the Dallas area, I happened to have the opportunity to meet some people there and they immediately saw what we were trying to do and got it. And they made a couple of grants to us in one year that totaled over a million dollars. And it was, um, it was a stamp of approval. It was, a you know, someone looking at it and saying, oh, you know, maybe there is something to this. And uh, honestly, I think that they opened some opportunities for us that it, it just ended up being a game changer, just credibility. Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's almost like every entrepreneur that's out there has to kind of you know, seek out the alternative ways to raise funds, not just through the angel investing or venture capital, but in your case, you know, it would, it's the serendipitous kind of investing, right? Like the opportunity of Toyota moving out of Southern California to, to, to Dallas. Is that where they went? Yeah. Allison? So, so to Dallas and then, yeah, you, you being able to notice that and then taking all the necessary steps to set up the meeting and get the, get the funds. I mean, again, we were very close. We were really very lucky, but it was definitely a game changer for us. Put us on a different path. Well, they say the harder you work, the luckier you get. There you go. <laughs> That's true. Uh, okay. So, all right. So we have an understanding then now of how you were able to uh, fund the operation. Now, again, I think one of the things that I appreciate about w what you're doing to build the business is it seems like specifically the the bond now that you're looking to raise is really going to give you this firm stainless steel concrete all the strongest metals and materials you can use of a foundation that really kind of takes you and the business to a whole nother level is that fair I think that's fair. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of an audacious thing to do, but we're uh, we're really excited about it. There's a huge interest in alternative types of finance out there, green bonds and social bonds, and a lot of investor appetite. Yeah, many people are worried about the environment, and it's a fair criticism that cars pollute, and you know anything that we can do to try to help with that, I think is, it's just removing an objection. Um, I'm not sure that I believe that we're going to end up in uh, a place where all vehicles in the United States are electric in the next 15 years. 
I think that's a hard sell. And, and I also am not sure that I completely agree that that's a lot better for the environment. Um, there's a lot of you know, natural resources that have to be mined for lithium for those batteries. And there's questions about how do you recycle them or what do you do with them when they're, um, when they've run their useful life and they're no longer um, there. But I do think that the more that we can do to get people into fuel efficient and less emitting vehicles, I think that's an important thing to do. And you can get that just by getting someone into a newer car. We've factually demonstrated that with um, with information from the Department of Energy on even within the same make and model, just a few years apart, they're much better for the environment than an older car is. Yeah, the it's, it's like a, a lot of what's focused on is the outcome and not a lot of attention given to what got you to that outcome. So meaning that like you know, the idea that we should all just move to an electric vehicle because it's going to be better for the climate doesn't consider everything it took to make that vehicle to continue to sustain that vehicle. When, right. again, we if we just look at the outcome, well, it's it's a net zero emissions vehicle. Well, it's not a net zero. It's zero emissions. Hopefully you'd want it net, but the reality is it's only zero emissions. We don't consider everything that was put into that vehicle in order to get it to zero emissions. Exactly. You're exactly right. And there's a real movement now to think about the whole life cycle of any product that we're you know, buying and, and understand whether it's ethically sourced and environmentally friendly and the supply chain and getting, getting the goods and uh, raw materials just moved to the plant. And the electricity that's used in power in the manufacturing setting um, to build the car and what happens when the car is at the end of its useful life. So, yeah, the whole thing is really important. I mean, I think those are some of the, the, the things that I learned about from Randall O'Toole, as well as Maria Frost, uh, who's the director of transportation at the Washington Policy Center, two very, very big advocates on you know personal mobility which in effect, it, that doesn't necessarily translate to a car per se, but certainly, again, just the ability to make personalized decisions on how you get around. Yeah, and the reality is that in most of the United States, it is a car um, because it's the most efficient and it's the most practical way of getting around. And a lot of the ideas that get generated around a transportation revolution um, are really impractical. So I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so the um, the idea that um, flying cars, for example, okay, well, we already have that. Those are called helicopters, and that's been around for a really long time. But you know, do you really take a flying car to go to the grocery store? And you know, you've got eight bags of groceries that you you repel up a rope to get up into the fly. You know, um, um, the, the whole idea behind scooters and, well, that's great if you are trying to get from an apartment in a dense urban environment to a restaurant, cool, that's great. But if you're a single parent with three kids and you're trying to get them to school and pick them up and go to soccer practice and get yourself to work, you're not doing that on a bicycle or a scooter or you're not walking for the most part. and you know, uh, Uber and Lyft are too expensive and not practical for someone as their only transportation. So I tend to think that 
when we're making investments in alternative types of transportation, even when we're considering mass transit, we need to look at what's right for people and how they live and whether they'll really use it or not. If it's impractical, they're not gonna use it. If it takes five times longer, they're not gonna use it, even if it's free, which well, is it, also Randall's point of view. Well, we, yeah, and, <laughs> and and I think one of the things that ends up happening too, right, is is all the folks that end up thinking it's good are also the people that generally won't use it because they have a car. You are absolutely right. I can tell you that um, I've had a lot of meetings with people that are real advocates of uh, transit, mass transit. And inevitably, when they come to my office to have a meeting, they drive there. Yeah, They're not taking mass transit, even yeah. though there's a bus stop right outside. It's kind of, you know, they just they don't use it, well, at least not on a daily basis. So it's 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 in April that you're looking to start or finish the, this, uh, this, the, the framework. We are looking to do the issuance, uh, the go issuance to market in, with the bond in April. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I know you've kind of enumerated some of the topics that, um, you know, in general you face hurdles on, uh, has there been any th- in, in hurdles with regards to, you know, what, you know, what is the potential of long-term success through this bond in your operation? Has there been any, um, you know, I guess, uh, feedback with regards to where, for instance, like the, the Biden administration and his policies are going so that, again, at least over the next four years, you're having some some folks question, say, hey, look, um, I mean, I guess you already touched upon this with regards to how you don't think that there's going to be in 15 years, all cars need to be EV and there can still be some internal combustion engines. Yeah, Um, I think in answer to your question about, you know, the new administration, I think they've made it pretty clear that they are very focused on the environment. Uh, So I think that that will be something that is not likely to go away and Um, green bonds and some of the other things that we're working on, I think will be um, well received. Uh, Trying to raise money for our loan fund and being able to make car loans for people. Um, EVs are generally still too expensive for most of the clients that we work with. We've made a few loans on some um, Toyota Prius uh, over the years, but not very many, and those were used. The tax incentives for Electric vehicles are only for new purchases, not for used cars, which is mostly what our clients get into. So I don't know that we would be able to do a green bond to raise money for our lending operation. Uh, We're exploring the possibility of just a social bond that's around um, the economic advancement that comes from being able to uh, access better jobs. And it's not insignificant. We've had clients that have tripled their income, just because they can drive to another county where there's a job that's better for them. I mean, it's, it would be especially appropriate around this time after, you know, we've, while we're still in this economic crisis, you know, we're, we are starting to see a little bit of the light at the end of that tunnel. You know, I always like to refer back to the 08 uh, financial crisis then and how we were able to get out of it. And, you know, over the ensuing 
eight years, we had just a robust economy, new jobs, new entrepreneurs. And I think this is kind of one of those times that we're going to, you know, history will repeat itself. So if, if we can empower more working families, individuals to, as I had said earlier, make the investment in themselves and in, in a car so that they can get to new um, economic opportunities, income opportunities. And I think that's where we're going to be in five years from now. We're going to look back and say, you know, we're going to all pat each other on the back and be like, we're, we're a stronger individual. We're a stronger family. We're a stronger country because of the investments we made right now in 2021. You're absolutely right, Dennis. I think that's true. I, I think innovation happens in times like this, you know, and um, we launched a new business, the garage and motors both came online in the middle of all this pandemic. We were, oh, under, really? we were under construction on a facility, our first one, um, and it opened in July. And so trying to um, build something and we invested about $15 million in these and what we were doing with this and trying to get that done in the middle of um, this was not easy. We had a lot of challenges, um, but you're right. And I think uh, getting, you know, opportunities for people to have good jobs and learn new things that are going to have a good future. Um, I think there's great potential to, to lay that groundwork right now. We're excited about it. So you do take the path less traveled. Uh, yeah, probably crazy. <laughs> Call me crazy. Um, well, let's 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 talk a little bit about you now. Okay, so I, I think uh, hopefully we have a good understanding of now your operation. Now we're almost going to get into the mind of Michelle Corson. How is it that she came to be in this world? So let's let's start with you. You you said you had a background in finance. Tell me about uh, your background in finance. Yeah. Uh, so one of the very first jobs that I had in my young adult years was in venture capital. And I uh, just lucked into that job and um, found that I had an aptitude and an interest in finance that I didn't really know existed at the time. Um, I was studying history. <laughs> I probably would have been a teacher if I'd gone forward with that, but um, it changed my perspective on things. And I started looking at how you um, how you invest and what your uh, thinking is to be able to take risk and uh, try things that may pr produce a return for you. So um, did a lot of investment in commercial real estate over a 25, 30 year period and um, loved it. Also really loved cars. That was just something I grew up with. I don't know where it came from. My parents were not that way. I didn't have really anybody in my family that was a car nut, but um, my first husband was in the car business. So I was around it for about 15 years. And um, I just had an epiphany, one of those turning points in life that people have and decided I wanted to take my background in finance and my love of cars and put them together. And that's when we came up with On the Road Lending. And it's very gratifying to do um, a business that captures your interests and aptitudes and is one that is also helping people at the same time. So um, it's been a quite an amazing um, eight, 10 years now. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious here. You said, uh, you know, again, I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to hash on old history here, but you had mentioned your first husband was in the car business. So when you say that, you're talking about the dealership world? 
Yes. Uh-huh. So you were you were technically a wife of a of a car salesman, which that that itself is kind of its own like subculture, niche culture, uh, into itself. Uh, you know, yes. what, what was that like for you? Oh gosh. Well, when I first met him, he was um, he was selling exotic cars. He didn't work at a franchise dealer. He worked at a an independent dealer that was doing. Um, Panteras and Ferraris and a lot of sports cars. And of course that just spun my head around and, you know, <laughs> she's like, Whoa, this is uh, really something. Um, and, and then he, uh, he went to work um, in selling some luxury vehicles and BMWs and Porsche for a long time. Um, there's not a life um, car salesmen work really hard late and weekends and so we never traveled we never did anything but um yeah and you were always like late to parties kind of thing right oh yeah i was honey what time are you gonna be off work oh the store closes at eight perfect uh we'll we'll all make reservations at 8 30 yeah bringing him up honey it's 8 30 where are you i'm in the middle of a deal right now i'll be home around 10 o'clock yes yes you got it yeah you know (laughs) you know that's pretty much what it was yes okay so so you 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 had a a career in in venture capital and commercial real estate. You eventually spun that off to combine your love of automotive, and now there's also kind of the, you know, the feel good and the social aspects of of what you're doing with your work. You know, I think one of the things that's really interesting, Michelle, and I'm I'm admittedly admittedly going to play the gender card here, because. Based on the things that you have said now, I don't find that male entrepreneurs who would want to start a similar business would say, you know what, we want to bet on someone's success. We want to bet on our customer's success. Like you said, they're gonna look at they're gonna look at this more like your traditional lenders and insurance companies and like, okay, let's emit the face of our customer. Let's just look at the spreadsheet of how this will work out. And yes, we will grant the loan. No, we will not grant the loan. You're looking at it as if there's a face to that person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, we, we call it character-based lending. And interestingly, it's, um, it's the way that lending was done for 5,000 years before the advent of the credit card in the 1950s. Um, people knew, you knew if, you, if I wanted to get a loan from you, I'd come to you and you'd get to know me. You're like, who are you? Why should I make that loan to you? You have to look at them as a human being and not as a number. If you're going to try to use anything um, in a human centered lending approach. And um, so that's what we do. Um, and to your point about gender, I'll go on to say, we actually have a lot of men in our senior leadership in our company, um, and it's been really uh, gratifying to see they get this every bit as much as the women do. Um, very smart people that um, really, really love this idea of character-based lending and a human-centered approach to making loans. So I don't know whether it's, there's a gender difference or not, to be honest I, I, I mean, share with us maybe some of the, were there any kind of conflicting moments for you, either as you were building the company or as you were just operating the company where you're like, you know, this character-based, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, character-based lending? Yes. Character-based lending philosophy 
is going to it's going to backfire on us guys. We have to go back to the traditional metrics of using risk-based assessments. Yeah. Um that we have this conversation from time to time internally. Oh, really? um, but yes, in the very beginning, I will tell you, in the beginning when I got this started, we we started making our loans in 2014. And at that time, I had no investors but me and my husband that had put money in. And so those first few loans that I was getting money out of my bank account personally to make those loans. And there were times when I looked at someone's paper and, you know, their story and their background and their credit report and thought, I don't have the guts to do this. You know, I don't know whether this is going to work or not. And to a person, every one of those people that we made loans to in those early days succeeded and um, just proved me wrong that that fear in the, you know, the gut of my belly there saying, you know, I don't know whether I can make a loan to someone who's had three auto repossessions and a credit score of 400, um, you know, but they proved me wrong. So, so again, let me return back to maybe your mindset versus others, or even let's say specifically mine, like how did you get to train yourself? How did you learn to get to the point where you're seeing something that intuitively you're like this this does not make sense. But instinctively, you said, follow the path. Yeah. Yeah. You do have to um, really question yourself sometimes on that. Um, but the thing is that people do have other assets, intangible assets that are worth something. And so someone who um, has lived in the same home, maybe they even own their home um, for 20 years or been at the same job and same career for 10, um, is showing signs of stability that is worth something. And um, when we have a conversation with someone, we, we coach them while we're underwriting them and we're trying to learn who they are. And if they acknowledge, you know, I was young and stupid and I didn't value um, good credit and I did all these things wrong and, you know, but I've changed or I'm looking to the future and here's what I'm doing. Those things are worth something. Um, also, we require our customers to make a down payment. And for the people that we're working with, sometimes that can involve a couple months of saving. And if they're willing to have the discipline to try to do that, that is a person that's worth taking a chance on, no matter what their credit score is. So, you know, at some point as a business then, uh, someone's going to ask, well, how scalable is this? I'm sure you get that a lot. I do. do. Do you just say, look, this is, you know, you're, you're, or are you saying that you're looking at it wrong or how, how do you respond then to the, how do you scale this operation? Yeah. And that's a really, really good question. Um, and it's something that we do get asked and have thought a lot about, our model is admittedly much more high touch than a typical um, lender is. They're making instantaneous decisions and ours has got some friction that's built in by design. So I don't know that we'll ever be as big as, you know, Bank of America or Capital One or whatever. We, no, we probably won't be. Um, but there is there are efficiencies that we can gain and we can 
are consistently trying to do that, finding ways that we can be more efficient in our work and get people through it, but not lose the integrity or the fidelity to our model of really getting to know someone. We don't have to spend weeks talking with them. It's usually an hour conversation, maybe two, um, while we're trying to get to know who they are. So it doesn't take an enormous amount of effort to try to just see somebody as a person and understand their life circumstances than to just look at a, a number. So I will say there's a little bit of reluctance I may have with that answer. Only time will tell, right? But I do think that there is, again, a genuineness that it's like, look, um, you know, maybe, again, you're just not the type to look so far 10 years down the road to have this massive enterprise across the entire United States of America, right? It's like, look, let's, we got to take care of here now. We got to take care of the people that are coming to us. And eventually, like I mentioned earlier, you just grow it brick by brick by brick. Yeah. I mean, was there, let's even rewind a couple years. When you are building the business year by year, what are some of the different either, you know, tactics, strategies, values that you personally make for yourself in order to get to this point now where you're looking to secure a hundred million dollar bond? Yeah. So um, we've had a lot of um, um, a culture of experimentation, I would say, in a view that it is okay to try things, whether they ultimately end up succeeding or not. That's the only way you fine tune your model and figure out what really works for you. Um, one of the changes that we've made is that we previously had gotten the vast majority of our clients referred to us by social service agencies in the four states that we're operating in. And it's a very, um, labor intensive and inefficient model. We don't have the kind of uh, dollars to be able to advertise like a subprime lender does, but we have to find a more efficient way to reach people that need us. And so that's something that we've been working on. So there's constantly efforts to find ways to make things um, better and operate better so that we can reach a lot more people and not everything works, you know, certainly, certainly, or it works for a while and then it doesn't anymore. So um, I want to, so first off, is there anything else about yourself that would be, again, for, for a lot of business executives that are in the audience where I'd like to think that you're not, I, fa I have found you and to me, I would consider you a diamond in the rough, but certainly you are not. Certainly, you know, you are a demonstrated founder and CEO. Is there any, you know, parting words or advice you would give to other, not aspiring founder CEOs, but existing founder CEOs that are currently trying to operate their business in today's environment? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a scary time for sure it has been, but I think a willingness to embrace change and new ideas is really important right now and of value. And I think um, having the courage to just try, take a chance and do it. You know, you, it was very easy to say, this is a bad economy and I'm not gonna open up a new collision center in the middle of all of this, but um, 
do it, just do it, you know, to borrow from Nike. I, I think that there is opportunity and I think that you will be rewarded if you have the courage. Um, and I would take that to the extent of also looking at the way that we do our lending. I wish banks had the ability to assume a model that people were gonna succeed instead of one where they're gonna fail. Uh, I think it would be so much better for the people that you're making loans to and with no difference to your bottom line. Um, you know, whether they can do that or not, I guess remains to be seen. That does remain to be seen, certainly a tall order, but it does seem to be that the prevailing wind is to have a an American society and, and culture that is more socially aware than the previous generation before that came before us. Yeah, and I think uh, you hit it on the head. You know, it's it's make investments, make investments. Now is the time. Invest in people. Invest in your employees. Grow your business. Um, just do it, and it's it benefits your community as well. Okay. Michelle, last segment here on the show. Last segment on the show is where I get to be a little bit more in tune with the meaningful, more impactful Michelle course in here. Mm -hmm. So this last segment of the show is called Bedroom Sessions, where you make the bed and you sleep in it. Okay, it's that <laughs> whole idea that, you know, you make your bed, you must sleep in it. So the question that I have for you and we'll try to maybe unpack it as much as possible. But the question that I have for you is, what would you like to accomplish with your money that is most meaningful to you? Um, I think, again, um, solving problems by investing in them, in the solutions, is what I want to do with my money. Um and it's what I've been doing and it's what I want going forward. And I think that if we can do it that way, it gives an opportunity for other people to uh, also derive the value from that. We're, we're hoping that our um, garage is an opportunity for everyone that works there to participate in ownership and profit sharing. And I think that um, it's not a zero sum game. It's not a limited pie. You know, being able to invest and recycle capital, the pie just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So more and more people can be a part of that. And I'm excited about that. I absolutely, it's the best thing about my work. Now, uh, understanding that, that the answer you gave can be both professional and personal, would you also have the same answer if this were more of a personal question such that again, like let's, let's say you remove the founder CEO from yourself yeah. and you know, you, you, you have it, whatever, it could be a hundred dollars. It could be a million dollars that you're saying, you know what, this is where I want my money to go to accomplish something that is most meaningful to me. Would it, would that still be one in the same? Um, Yes, um, I, I might add on to that that I'd like a one-bedroom house with a seven-car garage. <laughs> oh wait, why? Why specifically seven? So I can have a different one for each day of the week. Ah, uh, do you know which seven you would want? 
<laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, <laughs> I get asked that a lot. But, so. <laughs> All right. Well, well, excellent. So for you, the where you would want to spend your money that would be most meaningful to you is continue to, you know, essentially invest in your existing operation because you know that you are solving problems for other people. And that could be um, an economic problem where people are trying to go up the income chain and they need a job that could be a, a matter of transportation, that they that they need a car so that they can get to a job and they can, again, continue to move up the economic chain. Well, I definitely believe in the work that we're doing and I invest in the work that we're doing, but there are others out there that are doing great things too. Um, I'm getting ready to invest in a business um, that is uh, doing 3D printing of houses in Latin America, trying to solve homelessness. And oh, okay. it's an amazing business, And but it's the same thing. It's looking at where can you innovate? How can you recycle capital and invest in a solution that really has the potential to be a game changer for people? So um, it's not just about investing in my own business, but, um, I do believe in, in ours. And if anybody listening wants to come and invest in us too, they then happy to have the more the merrier. Yeah. Uh, no, amen. I, I see what you're saying with that Latin American example then, because again, your, your model also kind of uh, follows that too. So I, I, I see what you're saying. Wow. That's, that is uh that's, that's pretty cool. And I, I, I hope there's more, you know, businesses and entrepreneurs and investors that, uh, that we would all subscribe to that. I, it's phenomenal. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Michelle. I appreciate you being on the show. Dennis, it's nice to talk to you. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. As we end every episode, cheers. Prost. L'chaim. Kipis. Nastravi. Salut. Kampai. Mabruk. Tutsins. Gambe. Yamas. Nastarovie. Vo. Salute. And saudi To the customer experience. Business class listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. Be sure you check out the episode page, and if you want, have a peek at that PowerPoint presentation that Michelle and her team put together that officially launches their bond. It's pretty interesting reading material, especially if you pay attention to the language. If you're finding the show to be very helpful to you, if you're finding it to be of value to you, I would greatly appreciate, as always, to leave a rating and review. I would love to hear from you all. I'm starting to hear more from you guys, which is great, but please do leave a review. More to come this year in 2021 and making sure we all make the investment. See you next week.